Hi, folks. Today, I'm going to tell you the story of Jesus Christ's younger brother. So last time on Inebriated Past, we wrapped up the story of the Mormons in America. This journey from a marginal cult into one of the most thriving Protestant subsects uh, in America, and how it burst out of the ferment of uh, the early 19th century, which is really when uh, modernity really starts to emerge, uh, and, and in its emergence, create a host of social reactions to uh, the rapid changes that capitalism was going to bring to human lives. A lot of those changes were experienced as traumatic alienation from the world as people understood it and a desire to reground themselves and regain some sense of orientation spiritually and uh, materially in a world where they could not depend on verities that had sustained their entire bloodline for generations. And this explosion creates a worldwide reckoning you see connected and uh integrated events a, a flow of events from the from the revolutions of 1848 to the colonial domination of uh India and Africa to the American Civil War uh, to the Meiji restoration in Japan and to in China the Taiping Heavenly Kingdom rebellion uh, which is the most violent of all of these conflagrations. A civil war in the late Qing dynasty that killed an estimated 20 to 30 million people, mostly through famine and disease that came with the total devastation that this war had on the regions that it touched in the central Chinese heartland. So while in the United States, we have our tidy little civil war. Yes, yes, some railroads got ripped up. 600,000 guys died, half of them from diarrhea in their uh, camp. We certainly like to think of it as the pivot point of uh, that century. But in terms of creating a, uh, a violent social release that is anywhere congruent to the size of the social uh, and civilizational dislocation that capitalism and the Industrial Revolution are bringing uh, to human civilization. This is, this is a, a, the barbaric yawp of humanity as this new thing emerges, the, 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 the birth pains of the new world, as Condoleezza Rice would have said, are felt loudest and most powerfully in China. And that's because while in America the religious-infused alienation from emergent capitalism got to express itself in minority religious traditions that were able to thrive on the margins. And even when they were seen as threats to central power and repressed, like the Mormons, were able to flee to the free real estate free real to estate. the west of the American continent. Well, in China, in this same period, uh, there is no free real estate to be had. And the social group that the heavenly father of this new cultic dynasty, who is named Hong Jiquan, are the Hakka people. And what defined the Hakka as an ethnic group in China during this period is not anything cultural or even linguistic, even though they did 
by this period have their own dialect of, of Chinese, uh, but they were defined by their landlessness. Hakka means guest people, basically, because the Hakka descended from Han Chinese who lived in the central plain in northwestern China, the part of China that is most exposed to the depredations of the horse nomads of the Eurasian steppe and also with the least stable environmental conditions for agriculture, leading to more susceptibility to droughts and famines. The com- this combination meant that there has been, over the course of Chinese history, since, the early, since even before the empire had been, the, the first emperor had been crowned, there's a flow of, of erstwhile peasants from northern China into central and southern China. Uh, and because those areas had land that had been spoken for, uh, by, for generations because of the persistence of the Chinese state and its ability to enshrine property rights. It meant that when the Hakka showed up and continued to show up, they were pushed to the agricultural geographical margins of the places that they settled in. They had very little access to uh, anything other than uh, laboring off the sweat of their brow. Uh, they were proto-proletarians in this sense. They're rural proletarians, which is what Mao would later, later recognize them as because they had never had any, uh, at least in their current social uh, conditions, had never had access to common husbandry or a peasant smallhold. Uh, they had always been at the mercy of those who would pay them. And so that means that the most common job of the Hakka at this period are as agricultural laborers for larger landlords. But the military also saw a large amount of Hakka in it because that was another uh, option, a way to make a living uh, as an outsider, even after generations in these areas. Now, there's one main vehicle for social advancement accessible to anyone, theoretically anybody in China down to the uh, lowliest peasant. Uh, and that is entry into the bureaucratic, the state bureaucracy to become a Mandarin of uh, the imperial state. And this is what distinguishes more than anything China from Europe at this period. And I think explains why by this period that we're talking about, the early 1800s, you have a European capitalist social structure wrapping around a technological regime and taking over the fucking planet. Meanwhile, China, which has this persistent imperial state structure stretching back 2,000 years uh, and a place where every invention, every technological innovation that had gone into building capitalism had also been invented often centuries before they they emerged in Europe. But none of them cohered into capitalism. And that is because the system of medium-sized states in Europe led to a constant low-level confrontation and competition uh, that intensified the incentive of any given political structure within it to encourage innovation in order to win this deadly battle for control of this, the limited uh, area of this shifting, you know, continent. In China, however, 
because of their proximity to the steppe and the reality of nomadic invasion as the fact of life for any social order, uh, that sort of inefficiency that saw the landlords of Europe uh, were able to not just acquire uh, rents, but also assert military and political power. That simply could not be allowed to sustain itself. And in fact, feudalism in China is destroyed at exactly when the imperial rule finally emerges out of the warring states era because it could not be afforded. What was created instead was a meritocratic bureaucracy extending throughout every its tendrils across all aspects of Chinese life represented in every village involved in taxation and facilitating trade to the extent that it was amenable to uh, imperial stability, policing, adjudicating. Now, these jobs were very prestigious. They came with them significant salaries. It, and it was with the military and wage labor, basically, that you could uh, sustain yourself as, as a landless haka. But of these three... Uh, the bureaucracy was by far the most difficult to attain because it required applicants to pass a number of increasingly difficult civil service exams meant to winnow down the pool of applicants into a small pot, acceptable group of scholars who could then be like digested into the imperial ideological womb so that they can understand the value of the system that they, represent, that they uh, support. And that value is going to come in the form of increased pay, increased lands and titles. It is a treat treadmill that can keep the people you need to be adhered to the state adhered to it. Uh, and that is through the steady arrival of an increasing paycheck and also an intellectual environment that allowed people to think that they really were embodying Confucian values and making the world the best it could be by serving this empire. They really did believe that. and That is because the actual substance of these imperial exams was the memorization and then commentary upon uh, a canon of classic Confucian texts. Uh, any young boy who was going to, and they were all, of course, boys, who was uh, going to apply uh, for the courses of uh, testing uh, were required as by the time they were children to have memorized uh have memorized what is called what are called the four books and five classics which is the confucian canon written in, in 300 uh bc that uh and in the era before Im the uh, imperial system had emerged in which the moral structure is based on at achieving stability and achieving peace and then allowing justice to flow from that, uh, which becomes a very useful ruling ideology for uh, an imperial form of government, which is why Confucianism is the dominant uh, intellectual current uh, in, Jap in Chinese society at this point, amongst its learned scholarly class. So let us turn to our little rebel, Hong Zhiguan. Now, Joseph Smith emerged in basically the same economic circumstances uh, as Zhang Zhiquan did. But his family were, of course, 
yeoman smallholders who had attained land as soon as they came to America and then had been working different plots of it uh, across New England and upstate New York. And it's in that context that Joseph Smith crafts his religious doctrine and creates a politics out of it. First, an attempt to actually take power in the United States through his uh, run for the presidency, which, is of which was, of course, thwarted by his assassination, at which point of repression, Smith's followers still fired with the gospel, uh, head out on their great trek to Utah, and then end up growing along with the country and eventually being assimilated into it peacefully. Uh, here we have Hong Shikwan emerging as the child of agricultural workers, but instead of people who owned their own land and, and worked it as self-exploiting uh, owners, they were Hakka and therefore landless peasants. Uh, uh, his family was, uh, by the standards of the community, uh, relatively well off. Uh, but it was still understood that the only way they were going to ever achieve generational s stability would be if one of their kids made it into either the high ranks of the military or into the scholarly service. And, uh, our boy Hong is a very bright student. It emerges very quickly that he is uh, a pot he has potential, and so this is where the myth of the meritocracy of the of the um, of the system is exposed. Because, as we said, this is theoretically open to any man in the empire. But of course, since the test is memorizing and and commenting upon these Confucian texts, the more time you can spend with these texts, the better you are going to do at the test. And the young men who were able to spend the most time contemplating the text, often with the aid of tutors, were the children of the already wealthy, of the merchant classes and landlords, etc. And while by Hakka standard, Hong's family has some money, uh, they still have to sacrifice to get him the education and tutelage sufficient to give him a chance to pass the test. So he he's able to recite the four books and five classics. By the time he's six, he passes. He finishes first in the local preliminary examination. Then eventually he has to travel to a nearby city to take the first round of imperial examinations. And of course, you have to pay your own way to go to the test. Another winnowing factor to keep the, the currently empowered classes in control of the mechanisms of the state. But here he fails. Hong Jiquan, he cannot pass the test. And he's not alone. There's a very, very small pass rate, and the pass rate shrinks as it goes on. The fourth level, I believe, uh, has a pass rate of less than 1%. So at this point, uh, the family's out of money. They can't keep him, uh, they, they can't afford to have him off studying anymore. So he comes to his village, which is in southern China, near the Vietnam, Vietnam border, and becomes a local school teacher, which is, you know, th that's what you do if you fail the test, basically. And, and, uh, and becoming a, a school teacher or a tutor, this is sort of the marginal and, and low-paying work that awaits you if you make for the academic track and fail it if anything 
if any of this sounds familiar to anybody in the current situation we have in the United States. So he goes home, spends a couple of years studying and teaching. So, and it's while he's, he's waiting for his chance to take it again, that he first encounters uh, some works on Christianity by Western Protestant missionaries. Protestant missionaries had been coming into China along with opium and everything else imposed on it by uh, the Western states. And it was making its way by this point in, into Chinese society. There were a number of high-profile converts who were writing their own uh, Christian pamphlets in Chinese and having them circulated. And according to later testimony, uh, when he sees these now at this point, he doesn't even really pay attention to them. He's just like, oh, that's kind of interesting. But then he goes to take the test, fails it again, comes home. In, 19, in 1837, he tries a third time to pass the imperial examinations. And when he fails then, he has essentially a nervous breakdown. He becomes delirious. He is in and out of consciousness for days in a, in a delirium. His family was afraid he was going to die. And afterward, he came back to consciousness, and he claimed to have had a visitation, that he had gone to heaven and he had met God. And, and God told him, that he hung was his son, that he had an older son, uh, that he was the younger son uh, of his firstborn, uh, and that he charged him with the task of uh, stopping the people from worshiping demons and getting them to worship the one true God, his father. And while he was in his delirium, his family heard him shouting, uh, kill the demons. He was. He would shout it. He would shout, "Kill the demons!" Now, after telling everyone what he had seen, he seemed to be very unburdened. Uh, later testimony says that he was. He seemed to uh, have shed a lot of the uh, anxiety and misery he'd been feeling about his inability to pass these goddamn tests. But he doesn't really make anything coherent out of them. He talks about it to friends. They're certainly interested in it. But he spends his time working as a teacher. Uh, he doesn't have much time to study, uh, but he still clearly has, this point, has eyes on making one more go of it because in 1843, he fought, tries for a fourth time. And this is it. Four strikes, you're out. Now, after this, he did not have another uh, breakdown, but he did come back home and start looking at these Christian pamphlets that were, he'd had and that he'd looked at before. And he started connecting them to the vision he had had. And he put together a narrative whereby uh, the, the Heavenly Father was God, as the Christians understood him, who had begat Jesus, his son, and Hong Jiquan was his younger brother. And that he was charged with stopping the people from worshiping demons, which was the Confucian court ideology that was placed on top of the folk paganism that the fine Chinese re uh, religious traditions at the grassroots level, that this was a demonic ideology twisted to serve the ends of foreign rulers. And that there had been a real God, there had been a true godly worship in China before the coming of the emperor and that that God had been uh, distorted and, and warped by the Confucian establishment. 
and that at this point, by the 1800s, uh, it meant that it was in the service of a domination by a foreign power, that the Han Chinese, the children of God, were being twisted into worshiping demons by, uh, for the benefit of these uh, foreign devils. And those foreign devils are the Manchu. Uh, so at this point, the Qing dynasty had ruled China since the mid-17th century. They took power from the previous Ming in the same sort of apocalyptic environmental disruption that caused the Thirty Years' War and the English Civil War in, in Europe. More on that in a later podcast. And the Manchu were a, like the Qing dynasty were made up of a, a elite warrior group composed of the steppe nomads, the Manchu, uh, who were part of the broader steppe nomadic cultural tradition that was most powerfully embodied by the Mongols, who had ruled China for a few centuries uh, previously before being overturned. Uh, as all dynasties eventually did in in or the emperor's empire's long history, uh, there was this one state and it was eternal, but the specific dynasty that uh, dominated it would eventually, over time, uh, decay just because of you know entropy within a system more than, more than anything. Class a changing environment uh, coupled with a consistent class domination is going to eventually. Uh, create a feedback loop of uh, social hostility that's going to destroy you from within, which is, and when this happens, it is understood that the emperor has lost the mandate of heaven, which is the divine right. It's not eternally affixed to his blood the way it would be in Europe. It's affixed to his position as the one who keeps the uh, wheels of agriculture and trade and society humming and, Eventually, you have the natural entropy that enters the system and leads to corruption and indolence at the top, coupled with cycles of natural disaster that eventually make it so that the empire can no longer effectively respond to changing conditions. That's what happened in the 17th century when the Manchu, who were essentially invited into the country to help one faction in the existing civil war that was taking place to destroy uh, the Ming and then eventually just took over from everyone because they were the most powerful faction. They had the most internal coherence because they were emerging as a, a motivated force from uh, the step, you know, a, where <clears throat> instead of having armies made up of levied peasants and corrupt military bureaucrats, uh, you have a situation where the vast majority of able young men are horse riding, are well-trained horse riding soldiers. And it's a long and bloody fight, but eventually the uh, Qing dynasty of Manchus takes over. Uh, and so as Hong Jiquan is building his new theological and political perspective, he identifies first the rot at the heart of the empire, which is people suffer. Those around, the people he lived around were people who lived on a knife's edge of precarity and were cruelly exploited by tax collectors and landlords. They saw no justice in the world, uh, and it was all understood that that was the case. And 
This is, of course, during a cycle of ecological catastrophe. You have a run of uh, droughts leading to famines all through the uh, mid-19th century, which is going to contribute to all how all of this plays out. It's going to intensify every conflict, and it's going to make every conversion pitch that the uh, Taiping rebels have that much more persuasive when people encounter it. So in a world of suffering where they're ruled over by those who claim to support all of these Confucian principles, but in practice only so discord and, and violence and horror, uh, what can be the case here? He identifies the Manchu as essentially the uh, archons, the demiurgical archons tasked with keeping uh, the Han people from their knowledge of God. And the demons that he spoke of killing in 37, he now understood to be the Manchu. And he understood that there was no cohabitation between Christianity as he understood it, his need to propagate it, and the maintenance of uh, foreign Manchu Qi overrulership at the hand of Confucian Mandarin. He even goes to a blacksmith with his cousin and gets two giant three-foot-long swords with the word demon-slaying sword written on them. Eventually they lose them, but uh, it really does show their commitment to the bit there. So Hong starts proselytizing. He starts talking about all these ideas he's having. And people are very much into it because he leads with the need to create social justice. He leads with we need to live as Christ wanted us to in harmony. And that means no more landlords. That means no more domination. It means living in common with common ownership. This is a utopian uh, ideology that has fired religious uh, revolts against the empire going back generations. The tradition of secret societies within uh, Chinese, the greater Chinese society, coming together around religious concepts, largely Taoist, that point to an apocalyptic overthrow of worldly evil and the creating of uh, a equal shared earth, which is the communist dream that has has always fired uh, the human heart. When confronted with life at the uh, end of the blade of class rule, as people, as these people all did, so he wins over his close fa- friends and family. They start talking to friends. They talk to friends, and soon his followers have founded something called the God Worshipper Society. And as I said, there's a lot of religious secret societies in China going back centuries, many of which end up becoming the uh, sort of Jacobin or Freemasonic lodges that fuel rebellions against the decrepit status quo in periods of imperial decline. And in fact, in the early 1800s, generation before this, uh, the white there's something called the White Lotus Rebellion, which is a Taoist, is a Buddhist-inspired millenary movement seeking to bring the B- Buddha back to Earth by overthrowing the, the uh, oppressive Qing. And oppression is understood to be economic in this understanding. So Hong keeps speaking; people keep converting; they keep coming to him. He builds a whole 
political and theological edifice, basically on the spot, very in a very Joseph Smith way, as just getting more supporters and then collaborating with them on what God wanted from them. Because just like with Joseph Smith, Hong Zhihuan emphasized that the prophetic tradition and said that prophecy was open to anyone. And so, of course, some of his earliest prominent supporters claimed at certain points that they were the incarnation or the embodiment of Christ or God and claimed to speak with their voice. Uh, and if he liked what he heard, uh, Hong Zhihuan would get together and declare, that's actually correct. Listen to them. They are, they are speaking with God's voice. But what's different about this is the Christian element, is the syncretic element. It is the acknowledgement of China's place in the greater world. So when the 19th, when capitalism really kicks into gear and uh, European colonialism starts mapping all of the territory where there isn't sufficient uh, advanced state authority and power to stop them, uh, so they start flowing all over the world. And eventually they come around on the other side of the globe and find China, where instead of this building a dynamic capitalist economy, they had been mired in this centuries-long decline. And as I said, it's not because of cultural reasons. It's not because of moral reasons. One's not better than others. One's not more industrious. The other one also isn't like more in tune with the harmonies of nature. It's just that in Europe, small and medium-sized states had the capacity we're able to concentrate the capital to really wring social efficiency out of technology. And we're motivated to do so because of the competition they were in with each other. So that means that innovations that could be absolutely understood to be destabilizing to a social order and to the rule of a specific class were accepted, if grudgingly, on the basis that to not do so would be to be destroyed in total. That's why everybody eventually has to, eventually in Europe, accept the British model of political economy if they want to maintain their competitive space. In China, there is no outside pressure like that. I mean, there is no internal mechanism like that because the state has monopolized that political power. And so new inventions and innovations will be accepted to the degree that they facilitate a status quo, but will be repressed if they don't. One part of this is the Chinese refusal consciously to uh, try to explore or colonize themselves, even though they were in the position to do, sh do that. In the 15th century, at the height of the Ming dynasty, uh, at, at the height of the Ming, the Ming basically pulled a James Franco and Spring Breakers and said, look at all my shit to the world with uh, something called the pleasure voyage, uh, the treasure voyages. This fleet laden with, uh, with riches was went all through the lands of uh, South Asia. But instead of setting up shop and throwing the flag out, uh, they just traded and moved on and then eventually uh, were shut down, brought back, and trade, ship-based trade was repressed. The, the number of, uh, there was a limit on the number of masts that a ship could have to prevent Chinese ships from going too far from the mainland and, and establishing connections that might undermine the imperial power. But by this point, they could not ignore the outside world anymore. It was knocking on the door. Uh, the, op the first opium war, which happens just before this, in the 1830s, sees England basically blow open uh, finally 
China to Western capital and Western uh, exchange at the barrel of a gun. Not, not the old Silk Road, mutually beneficial, but now an imperial relationship because they could not resist it. They were incapable militarily of resisting the British army, which fought for the right to rebalance their trade with China by flooding it with opium grown elsewhere in the British Empire. One of the most astoundingly uh, cynical wars ever fought, and only the British in the fucking 19th century could have got it in their head that they were serving God by fucking forcing uh, opium at gunpoint into Chinese uh, cities. I mean, it's, it's beyond everything, Ed Tom. At this point, the Anglos had been driven barking mad by, uh, by the beast that they'd created. So now, instead of invoking other traditions, Buddhist or Taoist or, or local uh, ancestor worship or, or Confucianism itself that might have uh, motivated other past religious movements, the Taiping are able to incorporate this new European uh, doctrine that uh, signaled to them their place in a larger world and therefore uh, allowed them to think politically with horizons far beyond what previous rebellions rebels were probably capable of imagining. And so fired with this new, this new understanding of themselves within a global struggle, uh, Hong's recruitment only intensifies. And villages, entire villages start to fill up uh, with, with Taiping converts. Uh, it wasn't something, it was not retail politicking. These were not people who were uh, converted one by one by a pamphlet or a knock on the door. This was entire clans, entire villages sometimes converting en masse because what they heard was uh, we can end this misery. We can, make a, we can make it so that the landless have land because it spoke of overturning the landlords. It spoke of redistributing the land. Uh, living in common, living, living in justice, which to a largely landless, exploited pe uh, rural peasantry is music to the ears. So eventually they're able to build tens of, uh, they have a, a supported tens of thousands, which means there's whole areas that are controlled basically by the Taiping. And eventually the, this gets the attention of the central government, which leads to confrontation. But the Taiping are aided by one thing, the fact that they have been able to essentially carry out executive functions at, at the village level means that they've built a lot of goodwill with a lot of the local population because they're able to do things that the state can't, like stop banditry. Because as, as if this is uh, the Qing dynasty in decline, Imperial monies being siphoned off to private actors, nobody really operating out of any common good within the government. That means that the uh, that their military force, their police powers, become decrepit, uh, dec become decrepit as well. The main military organ of the Chinese Empire was the Green Standard Army, and it had its basis in the Han. The Han troops who had uh, agreed to serve the Manchu when they showed up uh, and united with them to overthrow the remnants of the Ming dynasty. 
it was ostensibly it was a combination of recruitment and conscription from the peasantry uh, and a standing professional army that was supposed to serve for life. But once the war has, was over and uh, the Qing were in full control, uh, there wasn't really anything for them to do because, as I said, they're not fighting, they're not fighting external wars. So the Green Standard Army settled into becoming essentially a national police force governed by local members of the imperial bureaucracy. But they were, of course, skimming off the top by this point. The, the wages paid to Green Standard troops had not uh, kept up with inflation so were uh, no longer livable. So that led to desertions and people er, and uh, troops trying to get employment elsewhere to supplement their income. And meanwhile, commanders would not actually replace troops who deserted or left, uh, but claim them so that they could pocket their wages, that kind of thing. So you have two endemic, so two types of organized crime emerge out of that. You have in the villages and towns, you've got the gangs, triads, secret societies that do things like sell opium and control gambling. And then you have in the, in the rural country, the banditry, people who just rob folks. Uh, and while there is a kind of complicated relationship between uh, urban populations and organized crime, because you know, they are part of the economic ecosystem. In the country, there's much more hostility to the bandits who the local government can't repress. But the Taiping, because of their organization, because of their selflessness and commitment to the cause, are much more effective at protecting people from banditry. So when the government shows up with their corrupt green standard officials and their underpaid, undertrained, uh, part-time troops, the local populations rally to the, the Taiping banner uh, and the initial attempt when it came in 1850 for the imperial troops to finally capture Hong and end this thing, they're ambushed and defeated several times. And they're aided in this by the fact that there is another secret society called the Heaven and Earth Society that's doing a rebellion in the same place at the same time. And they're tied up dealing with that. And it's in that context that the Taiping Heavenly Kingdom is declared. He declares the, the, he declares the heavenly kingdom of transcendent peace in January of 1851. Green Standard troops try to harsh his mellow. He, he defeats them. Now there's tens of thousands of followers. And they start moving north. And wherever they go, they're able to take the local city from the understaffed, undermotivated Green Standard garrison. And then quickly gain huge conversions to the cause. Because when they came to a city, they would do a couple things. They would declare the land in common, uh, declare the overthrow, the overthrow of the landlords and the, of the landlords and the communation of property, and then also uh, have a huge massacre where they killed every Manchu in the city, uh, because these were the demons. So every Manchu quarter within every city they took was destroyed down to the last person. So you have this imposition of social justice, which gets people like the dispossessed Hakka to convert in droves. Uh, you've got this punishment, this sacrifice of the, of the, of the sinful uh, rulers. 
Another thing they did was destroy the shit out of Buddhist and Confucian temples. They went on an iconoclastic spree, just like the Puritans of England uh, and the early Muslims. And then you have a, a doctrine of uh, religious life in there too. Uh, whereas Joseph Smith enforced polygamy, Hong Jihan abolishes polygamy. Uh, he also uh, uh, abolishes foot binding, which was a, a practice common in many Chinese cities, and, and recruited women into the army and made a real attempt to uh, create sort of an austere gender equality where women would gain equal rights to men, but men and women would be strictly uh, sexually segregated. There were women in the army, but every other element of uh, Taiping society was supposed to stress separation between men and women uh, to avoid temptation. And uh, the removal of vice became a crudal, crucial element of the Taiping religious tradition and its interpretation of Christianity, mm-hmm. which was literally misinterpretations, mistranslations of the Ten Commandments. But of course, this is inevitable because a religious attempt to create heaven on earth through the lens of Christian social teaching and values is, of course, going to have to also impose a private morality in addition to the public morality of, of uh, communal land ownership and uh, the abolition of class. <clears throat> if it is to be a truly transcendental religious movement, uh, it has to be totalizing because this is proto-socialism. And this is what proto-socialism always looks like. It's why the proto-socialism of European peasant rebellions invariably included massacres of nearby Jewish shtetls. So they start rolling, and they eventually have hundreds of... They're, they're rolling through the middle, uh, up through the guts of China, into the, into the, uh, the land between the rivers, the, the heartland. And the, the, uh, reds, the, blue, the green standards are completely incapable of meeting them anywhere. And the motivated people within the Taiping Heavenly Kingdom uh, are able to create an efficient, motivated military uh, fueled by a conscription system that saw one every household required to uh, provide one adult male for the army. So the army was the, the most important, the key institution. There was an attempt to do wide-ranging reforms of bureaucracy, and uh, tax collection, and as I said, uh, communization of land and the creation of communal treasuries. But what that meant in practice is, is that a lot of the trade uh, that defined urban life was basically shut down. Uh, but of course, there was. Uh, but of course, that trade would have been drastically reduced anyway, because while Taiping were able to roll over uh, these parts of China. Uh, it came with a massive cost. It, it, this war was a total war of devastation. Uh, everywhere that it touched, the local agriculture was completely decimated, and cities were usually burned or uh, destroyed, and as I said, in, uh, entire populations within the massacred, which just, just made the local economy collapse. But because of, the, because of the religious fervor of those participating in it, they were able to stand up an actual relatively effective state that could go hand-to-hand and go 
toe to toe or could go toe to toe with the declining Qing Empire because eventually Nanjing, the old imperial capital, in, is captured in March of 1853. The, the a massive Green Standard Army decimated by the king and, uh, and the city taken. And uh, its imperial palaces are entered into in triumph by Hong and his supporters and family members. He has his top guys, his, his, his cabinet, basically, his, his, his marshals, his version of Napoleon's marshals, are people who had come up with him over the course of those early years, had made the early successes, mostly came out of the striving Hakka classes, uh, which disproportionately came from, came from wage earners, uh, fewer merchants, very few landlords, though there were some of them, uh, especially in the early days. But it acquired a messianic, sort of Han nationalist character, too, because it could t- they could tell a story that, that made the rule of the, of the uh, Qing uh, metaphysically repugnant. And in, and in these early days, uh, just like Napoleon's marshals or Muhammad's early followers, uh, the cream rose to the top, and they were all dubbed by Hong to be different uh, kings of the empire. One was uh, the South King, the North King, the West King, the East King, and the Wind King. And they take, they take Nanking, and it's immediately invested in a siege that lasts for years. But this is the point when the Taiping Heavenly Kingdom goes from sort of a rebellious uh, front to an actual manifesting uh, state. And it's able to build sort of the rudiments of an internal structure with Nanking as the capital. There are attempts to uh, go north in the northern expedition to take Beijing, which fail, which is the first real uh, bump in the road in terms of advancement for the Taiping. They, they, they can't get Beijing, which, of course, speaks to you know, south-north divide in China and how uh, strategically important that has been historically. But there's a uh, expedition west that actually does gain some territory. So at this point, the western powers start finally really paying attention because uh, they, of course, have been trying to pry open China as a market for a while now, uh, and they now have a number of trade concessions on the coastal cities centered in Hong Kong and Shanghai, where there is a business to conduct, and they want conditions to d- conduct it. And uh, many of them started asking the question of, could we have a better deal with these Taiping fellows than with the emperor who's been resisting us this whole time? We just had to fucking blow his doors open in the opium war. And there's going to be a second opium war during the fucking Taiping rebellion where French and uh, British troops go all the way to Beijing and uh, burn down uh, the empire, emperor's garden. Just, it's just an end zone dance. It's just, it was basically a putative expedition, a rap on the nose. And there are some Westerners who really do dig the Taiping, and they love that they're Christian, and they love the idea of converting China to Christianity. But over time, details come out, and a lot of the... European Christians can't really reconcile what 
the heavenly kingdom is doing with their understanding of Christianity. And of course, class rule is absolutely part of that. One thing that definitely doesn't help the attempt of the Taiping to establish legitimacy for their Western would-be allies is that after the failure of the Northern Expedition, there is uh, a inevitable, I guess, turn uh, of the upper, uh, the upper levels of the movement against one another because this is a prophetic tradition. Uh, that means you got anybody at any time can claim that God is speaking through them. Uh, and, because, and Hong sort of retreats from power as his movement gains success. Uh, he is unable to assert an independent will on this thing that's moved well beyond his understanding, I think, of what he ever, of what he ever imagined would happen. Uh, he was going to bring about the end, and he probably, if, you know, at the, he probably thought for most of it early on that that meant he was going to be executed by the state, but do so in a way that would allow him to meet God afterwards and be re-embraced as his son. But now he's actually an emperor in his own right, control of a vast area of territory. His closest followers start competing with one another for influence over him and start uh, distrusting one another. And there is a, uh, essentially a self-purge of the top leadership where some of these uh, kings, uh, these directional kings, uh, start getting the axe. Uh, they kill each other. They are killed in turn by Hong, who is able to assert his control, but at the expense of uh, decimating his most effective commanders. And he, so in 1856, there is uh, a civil war, basically, within the upper ranks of uh, the movement, which severely undermines Taiping and gives the empire, which is absolutely reeling at this point, a chance to catch its breath and reorganize. So the Green Standard Army has been totally washed at this point and lost any confidence. The, the, the emperor has lost all confidence in uh, it. So they commission a civil servant, a Han civil servant named Zhang Guofan, to essentially build a new army from scratch that will have any chance of facing uh, the Taiping in battle. And so instead of the decrepit structures of uh, the Green Standard Army, he goes to the existing networks of local militia kept by local leaders in the province of Hunan and gets them to contribute tax uh, money and personal wealth to the building of an army and, and importantly, the paying of, of an army, the creation of a professional command uh, by guys who uh, are getting paid way more than the Green Standard chumps were uh, and would be more effectively trained and utilized. So in 1860, the Taiping were able to put together one their last big, bold, stunning victory when they, out, when they were able to break the siege of the army around Nanking, totally put the besiegers to flight and then plunge into eastern Ch central China towards Shanghai. And it's when the Taiping get near Shanghai 
that the Western governments get off of the get off the bench. Basically, they've been watching both sides. They've been mulling who will be better for business, but they have one situation which allows for business to be conducted under the Qing. And here come the Taiping to the gates of Shanghai, and who knows what they will do. The stories that had circulated about what happened to towns that had been taken by the Taiping, which a lot of them were sensationalized propaganda, were taken at face value. It was the danger of the Taiping destroying the status quo was far greater in the minds of the Western diplomats and governments uh, than the potential benefit they might bring by getting the, the Europeans better deals uh, on trade if they took power. Christianity, Smishtianity at the end of the day, about that bag. <clears throat> so the Taiping high watermark comes at the gates of Shanghai, where they are repulsed in part by a small mercenary army made up of European and American soldiers, sailors, and roustabouts who were just knocking around Shanghai. They were originally commanded by an American mercenary named Frederick Townsend Ward, who is a real fucking piece of work. He had been one of William Walker's filibusters uh, in the effort to try to take over Nicaragua for Cornelius Vanderbilt. And he'd been a Texas Ranger. He was the first ballot Hall of Fame American Imperial Spear Carrier. And he took the money of uh, the Qing government to put together a effective force of about 5,000 men who were instrumental in driving back the Taiping from the gates of uh, the city. And at that point, uh, the tide begins to roll back. The ever-victorious army pushes, uh, consistently pushes back the Taiping forces who had come towards Shanghai. Meanwhile, uh, the Zhang army created by, by Zhen Guofan is up and running, uh, motivated, effective. The poor guy, was, uh, Zhang Guofan, was not a general. He was a paper, paper pusher. He was a guy who had done great on all those fucking tests that Hong couldn't pass. He w- he's gallant to Hong Zhihuan's goofus. Uh, and he is tasked with the Manchu government of fulfilling his Confucian duty, which he believed in, by reimposing order. And they had a point because this war was p- killing millions of people. Everywhere it touched, the lands died, the crops died, the people therefore died. Uh, and there's a huge internal migration of people away from the territories that were touched by the war. It would be the highest virtue to stop this. That is what he told himself, even though he was a Han in the service of the Manchu. He had a deeper Confucian duty, which is exactly the thing that Hong Shifuan fought was the demonic false religion imposed by the Manchus. He was being manipulated by archons, basically. But he was, if he was, it worked well because the Zhang army is able to start rolling back these gains and recapturing uh, these cities and getting huge numbers of, at this point, poorly paid, poorly uh, provisioned troops to desert. And in every city that was taken, there was another massacre to match the earlier massacre of the Manchus. So when the Manchus had taken power, they had 
required every adult male to shave the front of their heads and put the, their hair into a double-plated ponytail down their back called a queue. And there had been huge resistance to that in the 17th century. There had been wars. It, uh, it took much. It took the, the, the Qing probably 10 years longer than it needed to to t- conquer China because they insisted on making the Han do this. And so one of the first things that the Taiping did, of course, was say, fuck that shit, grow your hair out. So they were known as long hairs by the, by the uh, loyal Chinese. So anybody who was encountered who had long hair just could get their head cut off. They would just do it in an assembly line fashion. Meanwhile, in Nanking, uh, the Heavenly Father is starting to lose it. He starts doubting everybody, especially after the Civil War and his top leadership. He's kind of growing isolated and decadent. Uh, Meanwhile, out in the field, many of his commanders are starting to defect. And so by 1864, once again, Nanking has been surrounded by the enemy. This time, not the Green Standard Army, but the the Hunanjiang Army of Zhang Guafan, which has proven itself in battle at this point. Supplies, food are running very, very scarce inside the city. And Hong orders his subjects to uh, eat manna, which is a biblical term that he encounters in his studies of the Bible and interprets to be uh, local medicinal herbs, which leads him to start eating weeds that he finds on the palace. Uh, That makes him sick. Uh, He dies on June 1st, 1864. Uh, He might also have been poisoned. But at that very moment, basically, uh, sappers of the Qing dynasty are digging trenches under the main walls of Nanking. And uh, three days after Hong's death, uh, the detonation brings down the walls. The city is taken by the Qing. There is, of course, a huge massacre of Taiping rebels. Hong's body is disinterned, beheaded, burned. Eventually, his ashes were shot out of a cannon to prevent anybody from uh, turning his grave into an altar. Now, it's, crucial, it's important to say that this isn't just the, the uh, result of the Qing getting better and the Taiping getting worse over time at dealing with the situation. <laughs> there is the hand of the Western governments because... One of the reasons that Shanghai fell is the refusal of the British Navy, which was there, to, to allow the uh, Taiping to take it. And they provided naval logistical support to the ever-victorious army, which after the death of Townsend in 1863 is commanded by uh, General Charles Gordon, who would eventually die a martyr to the empire in Khartoum, Sudan, uh, and who would, after his time in China, forever be known as Chinese Gordon. And he's a weird uh, Volsell freak, one of the real mutants of the British Imperial Project. Uh, and he takes over the ever-victorious army and helps put paid to the Taiping rebels. It takes another decade to roll them up everywhere, and groups of them spill out to or to become bandits and fight wars in Laos and Vietnam. But 64 is sort of the death of it, of the Taiping as a state. And 
given that the cycles of Chinese history and the the the, man, the the way the mandate of heaven had historically worked, uh, there was no denying that the uh, Zhang Fen Emperor of the Qing had lost the mandate of heaven. Not only was a huge swath of his country in the hands of the Taiping, but there was a massive uh, uprising in North west uh, among chinese muslims there was endemic piracy on its rivers there was there were in 1860 there were fucking british troops stomping their muddy feet in the forbidden city no one in chinese history had lost the mandate more than Fen emperor and the sort of tidal logic of chinese history was that he should have been overthrown but because history moves in one direction and china is only part of a world system by 1860, there was this Western power, this coalition of otherwise competitive European imperial states that had a shared interest in seeing the king reimpose stability into the Chinese market. And they were able to tip the Coke machine back from falling over. But of course, it's not for long. The decentralization of military power that comes from the creation of the Zhang Hunan army becomes a permanent feature of Chinese politics after this and contributes to, uh, and it contributes to the dissolution of the, of the dynasty in the next decades because this was a sick, sick man propped back on the throne. This is a terminal patient propped back on the throne by the Western powers. And it was not long for the world, no matter what they did. So, in 1905, there is a nationalist revolution led by Sun Yat-sen, who grew up in the same province as Hong, grew up hearing tales of the Taiping rebels from people he lived amongst, and, and lionized Hong as a visionary, someone who saw the opportunity to turn China into uh, a real nation. And then after the nationalist government collapses into warring factions, and the Communist Party is driven out of the cities, figures like Mao recognize in the figure of these Hakka dispossessed peasantry, the ones who formed the, the majority of, that formed the majority of the Taiping army, uh, he saw the, the material for a rural proletarian military force. And so but by the time of the Long March, when 80,000 Red Army troops and family members and camp followers began their long march away from encirclement from Chiang Kai-shek's nationalists, that army is 70% Hakka. It's the exact same social base that fueled the Taiping Heavenly Kingdom. And Mao, Mao sought to commemorate the Taiping as a proto-socialist proto movement, and they certainly are, but in... The 1860s, that social formation lacked the structure imposed by the existence of an industrial working class within it, which had not yet cohered uh, by this point in these parts of China. And the Chinese communists are able to succeed by harnessing traditional forms of pre-capitalist exploitation with the industrialized working class that has emerged in the cities since then. I want to come back at the end here to the comparison of Joseph Smith and Hong Jifong. Both of them ended up failing in their goal to bring heaven to earth. Both of them had within their lives the knowledge that they had been 
defeated by the earthly forces of evil that they were in contention with. But Mormonism was able to survive in the main by a internal migration to expand, to live as they wanted to, to create a social equilibrium with market capitalism on their own terms, not through violence against the state directed upward, but by adhering themselves to the greater imperial, the greater imperial violence of dispossessing natives from North America. So Mormonism got to be a vastly influential and powerful segment of the American people. But the heavenly kingdom could only come into fatal conflict with the state because that option did not exist. All that land was spoken for. Uh, Plenty of Hakka uh, did respond to the worsening conditions of the 19th century by emigration, but they emigrated to other countries where they were a hyper-exploited, uh, hyper-exploited proletarian, uh, like in the United States. Uh, oh, some of them became merchants, uh, but they were all as minorities within a greater uh, foreign polity that tolerated them lightly, if at all. So nothing is able to cohere there. It must wait another historical cycle until it is embodied by another fusion of peasant resentment at dispossession with a utopian, apocalyptic, European intellectual concept developed by people who had progressed farther in the process of capitalist state and cultural formation. And now with these with new conditions, with intensified technology and intensified urbanization, that ideology, that utopian horizon can be effectively harnessed to not just challenge for power and hold power regionally, which the Chinese communists did for many years uh, while they were in contest with the nationalists and eventually the the Japanese for control of the country. And that's one of the things that makes the Chinese Communist Party now so interesting is that their conception of uh, communism is nationalist, yes, as it is going to be in any uh, state that experienced colonization uh, from outside rather than in. The nationalism of uh, the Chinese Communist Party is deeply enmeshed in a, the traumatic memory, the traumatic cultural memory of this period. Uh, the Opium Wars, the intervention against the Taiping, uh, then uh, then the, the Boxer incursion, and then the horror show, the millions killed by Japanese imperialism during World War II. And it'll be interesting to see how that colors the Chinese response to the unfolding crisis of the 21st century that we're currently dealing with. I guess we'll find out one way or the other. Until then, good night. Good night.